Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February 15th, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is What's Next for Schmidt Island by Andy Piper. Alex Dixon is all ready to start taking orders. Dixon, president and CEO of Q Casino and DRA, presented the Dubuque City Council with an update this week regarding plans to overhaul Chaplain Schmidt Island. The plan is broad in scope and will require significant investment of time and money, but ultimately promises a return equal to what Grand River Center and the National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium have meant to the Port of Dubuque, its planners say. Major components of Schmidt Island's redevelopment already are underway. Q Casino will open its new casino floor this summer. Construction will begin on a new hotel later this year, and an amphitheater is slated to open in 2026 on the former site of Dubuque Greyhound Park. Dixon wants to know, what's next? I work for you, Dixon explained to city council members. You are not speaking to an outside developer. You are in the position to place orders that we carry out. Help us with the priorities so we can create the blueprint to fulfill the aspirations we have. DRA, which operates Q Casino and is the nonprofit license holder for both Q Casino and Diamond Joe Casino in Dubuque, maintains a lease agreement with the city that splits DRA's annual distribution evenly among the city, local charities, and improvements to Chaplin Schmidt Island. DRA leaders last year hired RDG Planning and Design to craft a new development plan for the island. Ryan Peterson, a senior partner at RDG Planning and Design and a planning consultant on the project, said the market conditions have changed and the time is right to move forward. The demand for open spaces, aquatic recreation areas, and water-centric activities are at an all-time high, Peterson said. The spending in those areas has never been higher, and people are thriving being outdoors. This project is to fulfill the island's vision of being Dubuque's gateway to entertainment and the Mississippi. Here are some proposals for the master plan that have been placed on the drawing board. Hotel and Apartments The consultants studied Dubuque's current need for apartments and the state of hotel occupancy rates. They also made clear that constructing large buildings on the island is a challenging undertaking. The island was a landfill, Peterson said. In some cases, you have to consider that there is 8, 10, 12 feet of rubble that we have to get through. You have to have a building that is structurally sound. To support that is going to require deep foundations. An apartment design concept shows parking at ground level with units on the second and third floor to mitigate the impact of a historic flooding event. Chris Brewer of AECOM Chicago, a consultant on the project, said the Dubuque market can sustain 400 high-end apartments and can support another hotel on the island in addition to the one Q Casino already has plans to build. It is something we noticed as not really offered in Dubuque, Brewer said, of the potential high-end apartments. When you look at the number of stays and the hotel-motel capacity, we believe there is an opportunity for another hotel. Promenades. Picture the Riverwalk in the port of Dubuque. 
Think of this as that long view as you enter a space, Peterson said. A lot of river-centric areas have these beautiful promenades, and we believe Schmidt Island should have one that is certainly equal to the Port of Dubuque. I'm on Arena Edition. An addition to the ice arena would create another venue for hockey and skating, but also is envisioned as a year-round destination with space for pickleball courts, cornhole, lawn and indoor dining, a bar, and club room. Seasonal options could include roller skating and a splash pad. The idea behind this is, how do we keep people on the island longer, Peterson said. How do we keep them engaged and make Dubuque a destination? Destination play. This concept is a play zone for children of all ages through teenagers. It could include park-like apparatus for youngsters, but also climbing, bouldering, and perhaps a zip line. People will drive long distances for destinations like this, 35 to 45 minutes, Peterson said. If you can spend an entire Saturday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. and still sleep in your own bed at night, these are the types of things you are looking for. Recreation Outpost This is something we see as a huge opportunity with the potential for water taxis that come and go and serve other destinations up and down the river, Peterson said. In creating place for taxis to arrive, we create a place to talk about the ecology of the island and share more about that. There could be a multi-purpose facility with concessions, fill up with gas, a lavatory in space that perhaps a non-profit or educational entity could use. Public fishing. There are places where there is rapid current on the river, and those tend to be attractive spots to fish, Peterson said. Piasta Channel could be a great destination for fishing and a great amenity. Observation Tower. We see this as a feature that could be equivalent to the 4th Street Elevator and have that 360-degree panoramic view of one of the most beautiful Mississippi River Valleys most people will ever see, Peterson said. Boardwalk. This would serve as the gateway that attracts the eyes of people driving over the Wisconsin Bridge, along with improvements to the RV Park and camping area at the Miller Riverview Park. Bridge Lighting. This includes decorative lighting along the span of the Wisconsin Bridge that potentially could be rented for special color themes and events. There is an indirect benefit to the community as far as attracting people, Peterson said. We have looked at places that have done this and places that were not destinations become a destination. Island Restoration The island's natural habitat has sustained several degradations over the decades, with invasive species overtaking many areas, with regular flooding taking its toll. There is a direct correlation between the vegetation that exists and the inundation of floodwaters, Peterson said. The areas that are prone to flooding are most likely the least diverse areas of the island. There is a real opportunity to remove the buckhorn and remove the honeysuckle and some of those plants that create this wall that you can't see out of it. Over the next 10 years or so, we have a strategy where you can really create a thriving ecosystem on the island. Birding. With the island's proximity to the Upper Mississippi River National Wildlife and Fish Refuge, it already attracts migratory birds, but with some enhancements, it could become a destination for birding enthusiasts. Birding is a big business, and people will drive fairly far in order to photograph and enjoy that, Peterson said.
So, creating boardwalks and amenities that are not just a really nice walk, but also create another layer that brings in people for various birding activities. Council input. Dubuque City Council members each had their own input to offer on aspects of the proposals. Rick Jones. A local business leader wants more owner-occupied residential. Condos or something along that line. Curling is a growing sport. Currently, we have ice fishing and not curling and climbing. Danny Sprank. Talking with people in my neighborhood, they want a restroom at the Veterans Memorial. David Resnick. I thought it would be cool to have a rope bridge over that area that would go from the observation tower you are talking about over to the boatyard. People love walking bridges. People could walk right over to A.Y. McDonald Park and other areas. Susan Farber. I also want to address housing and the size, maybe some that are larger with more bedrooms for families. Katie Withel. In addition to creating attractions to bring people in, the attractions will be used by citizens now, such as paddleboard rental. Laura Roussel. I'm really excited about the restoration and adding to the diversity. The birding activity, that is such a huge industry. I don't know if our friends from the Audubon Society have been a part of the conversation, but they are extremely knowledgeable about how to address those issues. Mayor Brad Kavanaugh. It's great to see what really is possible here. We have a lot more work to do. This is public land, and as the city council, we represent the city of Dubuque, so we get to be pretty specific in our goal setting. This process isn't different than anything else we do. Dixon is ready to hear the council's answer to the question, what's next? There will be decisions we make that will set the law the tone for the next 100 years. There are some near-term indications that we can make quickly, Dixon said. All will dictate the timing of a lot of it. You all have their purse strings as to how you want to move forward. Place more orders and we will get it done. City council members plan to bring some projects up for discussion when they set their annual goals and priorities later this year. Turning to the Dubuque and Tri-State page, this story is titled, BVM Sisters Donate $6 Million to Clark, by Elizabeth Kelsey. A Dubuque University has received a substantial contribution from a local order of women religious. The Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary on Wednesday announced the donation of $6 million to Clark University. The contribution, the second largest one-time gift in the university's history, will serve as the head gift for an upcoming $40 million capital campaign at Clark. A group of local 30 BVM sisters gathered at the Mount Carmel Mother House Wednesday afternoon to present the gift to Clark staff. We just can't tell you how thankful we are, said Fletcher Lampkin, Clark University interim president. The impact of this gift, not only on the immediate budget, but on our long-term financial picture, is extremely positive and profound. In thanking the sisters for their contribution, Lamke lauded the important presence and influence of the BVMs throughout Clark's history. Clark began as St. Mary's Female Academy in 1843, founded by Mary Frances Clark and the first Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
The school would move multiple times before moving to its present-day location in 1881. It was renamed for Mary Frances Clark in 1928. BVM President LaDonna Manternak said BVM sisters have earned degrees from Clark, taught at the institution, and served the college in other integral ways throughout the 180-year history. Today, sisters remain connected with the school, from serving on the college's board of trustees to acting as prayer partners for students. We see the continuation of Clark's foundation of not only preparing students academically, but giving them purpose in their life, Matternack said. The $6 million gift is part of a planned $40 million capital campaign to fund substantial campus upgrades. These include remodeling about half the residence halls and reconfiguring campus facilities to create a new Center for Academic Excellence, which will include academic advising and career services. A new Student Success Center will house other support services, and the school's library will be updated, among other changes. It's a modernization of the campus, Lampkin said. We're not building new buildings or doing anything fancy. We're updating campus spaces from what students may be needed in 1980 to what they need now. He said university officials recently wrote to Matternack and the BVM congregation asking them to consider supporting the campaign and are honored and grateful for their decision to do so. For her part, Matternack said, the BVM sisters view their partnership with and support of Clark as a sacred privilege. Clark University makes a difference in today's world, and our support remains crucial to this vital mission, she said. Now, this story titled, Three Longtime Dubuque School Administrators Retiring, by Elizabeth Kelsey. Three Dubuque Community School District administrators have announced plans to retire this year. School board members approved the upcoming retirements of Shirley Horstman, Joanne Frank, and Kevin Kelleher as part of the monthly personnel report at their regular meeting on Monday. Horstman, the district's executive director of student services, will retire in June, according to board documents. Horstman has held the role of executive director of student services since 2005 and has worked in the district since 2000 having initially worked as a teacher on special assignment in K-12 through math and science and as an administrator overseeing math and science. Frank, who has served as the district's food and nutrition manager since 2012, also plans to retire at a date to be determined, according to documents. Frank joined the district in 2004 as assistant manager of food and nutrition services and as a dietitian. The personnel report also included the resignation notice for Kelleher, the district's chief financial officer, who previously announced his intention to retire in December 2024. He has held the role of CFO since 2011 and worked in the district since 2002. During the meeting, board member Nancy Bradley mentioned Horstman, Frank, and Kelleher's upcoming retirements and thanked them for their services to the district. In reading the personnel report, I was just struck again at the loss when I see who's leaving us, she said, mentioning not just the three administrators, but also retiring teachers who we simply will struggle to replace, not just with someone, but with someone 
who can do what they do. Fellow board member Anderson Sanchi noted that the retiring administrators have left a legacy of capable leaders in their wake. The beauty of it is, although they're leaving and we thank them for their work, they've built other leaders, so we'll be ready, he said. District spokesperson Mike Sinzi wrote in an email to the Telegraph Herald that the district will move through its established processes to fill these roles. Now we have the news in brief column. Dubuque man sentenced to 35 years in prison for sex abuse. A Dubuque man has been sentenced to 35 years in prison for sexually abusing two minors. Benjamin M. Atchison, 70, recently received the sentence from Iowa District Court Judge Michael Schubat in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to charges of third-degree sexual abuse of a minor and lascivious acts with the child. As part of Atchison's plea deal, three counts of second-degree sexual abuse, one count of enticing a minor, one count of indecent contact with a child, and two additional lascivious acts charges were dismissed. Court documents state Atchison sexually abused two people under the age of 18 on multiple occasions over a span of multiple years. Man sentenced to 10 years for theft, high-speed chase. A Dubuque man has been sentenced to 10 years in prison for leading officers on a high-speed chase after stealing a woman's purse. Gunther J. Williams, 25, recently received the sentence from Iowa District Court Judge Monica Zrinal Ackley in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to charges of first-degree theft, felony eluding, and third-degree burglary. A related charge of fourth-degree criminal mischief still is pending, but any sentence entered in that case would run concurrently to the 10-year sentence. Court documents state that Williams led authorities on a high-speed chase June 7th. Authorities attempted to stop Williams near the intersection of John F. Kennedy and Hillcrest Roads at 3.30 a.m. when he drove onto Asbury Road, fleeing the area at a high rate of speed. After a pursuit through the area, Dubuque County Sheriff's Department deployed tire deflation devices at the intersection of Dodge Street and Wacker Drive. Williams continued east on Dodge before taking the Grandview Avenue exit ramp, document state. At this point in the pursuit, Williams was paced at approximately 100 miles per hour in a posted 55 mile per hour zone, document state. Williams' vehicle eventually struck a tree in the 100 block of South Grandview Avenue, and he fled the scene on foot. Authorities said Williams stole a woman's purse, jewelry, and other items during an incident in an alley in the 2200 block of Jackson Street earlier that day. Dubuque police seek feedback during accreditation process. The Dubuque Police Department seeks feedback from the public as part of its accreditation process. The department is working its ninth accreditation in 2024, according to a press release. In the, the department originally was accredited by the Commission on Accreditation of Law Enforcement Agencies in July 1993. The commission has created a portal for the public to share comments and information regarding the agency's quality of service or other information relevant to the accreditation process, 
according to the release. Public submissions go directly to the Commission and are not seen by the Dubuque Public Police Department. The public portal can be accessed via tinyurl.com slash DPD accreditation. The portal also can be found at cimrs2.calea.org and searching for Dubuque Police Department. Call Dubuque Police Department Corporal Chris Gorrell at 563-587-3806 for more information. And the police column? The Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Departments reported the following. Troy A. Berg, 44, of Ridgeway, Wisconsin, was arrested at 6.15 a.m. Wednesday at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on warrants charging domestic assault, fifth-degree criminal mischief, and three counts of violation of a no-contact order. Michael S. Marinko, 33, of 704 University Avenue, number 2, was arrested at 9.03 a.m. Tuesday at Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center, 250 Mercy Drive, on a charge of assault with injury. A wire fraud case resulting in the theft of $2,515 was reported at 9.41 a.m. Tuesday in the 700 block of Edwards Road. Now turning to the opinion page, we have this column by Kurt Ulrich. The other view, titled Settle Down, Lest Your Cup Runneth Over. Dateline Rural America. Snow has finally disappeared from the north-facing hillsides in my hollow. The winter has been rough on the trees down there, and I'll have to engage in a bit of cleanup this spring. A cardinal couple has decided to construct their nest in a bush by the side door. Consequently, every time I go out, they fly off. I should leave a note suggesting they decamp to a quieter spot, but for now, here they remain. Perhaps I'll name them, maybe Ralph and Alice. As these things are wont to do, odd thoughts traveled through my head last week while on a driving trip. A trip across four states in three days, wherein I occasionally availed myself of restrooms in restaurants, gas stations, and convenience stores. And I'll just blurt it out. Men, when you need to use the bathroom, sit down. When my wife and I married, more than 40 years ago, we agreed that I would do all the housework. She was doing important things, and I was, well, middle management all the way. So it seemed appropriate for me to do the cleaning, laundry, yard work, ironing, etc. The cleaning of the bathroom was a revelation to me. Anyway, many men can be incredible pigs when it comes to bathroom cleanliness, and I suggest that whoever is in charge of bathroom cleaning in your house should insist that men sit. It's easy and doesn't emasculate in any way, shape, or form. When on long-distant flights, I use the restrooms, tough to rest in a 3 by 4 foot space, just ahead of my wife, cleaning up whatever prior men had wrought. It was the least I could do for the person who made my life so meaningful. The worst example I've encountered of this sort of pig-like behavior was at a Willie Nelson concert. I don't know if this behavior was peculiar to Willie's crowd, but at this particular venue, there weren't enough restrooms. So, as usual, women stood in line while there was no line for the men's room because men were using the sinks. It's one of the few times I failed to wash my hands. Okay, enough of this. 
On Super Bowl Sunday, I stopped at a Starbucks in a town north of here and ordered a yuppie toffee nut latte from a young barista wearing a name tag that read Taylor. When she asked for a name to write on my coffee, my coffee in a cardboard cup, a terrific John Kander song from 1971 Broadway show, I gave the only appropriate name for the day of this year's game, Taylor. And it was gratifying to stand with a bunch of folks at a busy Starbucks waiting for a beverage, gratifying to hear a barista calling out the name Taylor, and me knowing folks might wonder if that was really my name, perhaps thinking of the girlfriend of a football player. Also on Super Bowl Sunday, there was an unexpected knock on my door. All knocks out here are unexpected. It was a young man who'd written a very sweet letter last year, asking if he and his small daughter could come out here to hunt for what are called sheds. Deer grow new antlers every year, shedding the old ones. After they headed to the woods, I put a pair of antlers on the hood of the guy's pickup truck, not wanting the little girl to be sad if they came up empty. I needn't have worried. Another knock on the door, and there stood dad and daughter with some of the most beautiful antlers I've seen, and the child, no more than two years old, was giddy with delight. It was all so simple. And that's by Ulrich, a freelance writer who resides in rural Jackson County, Iowa. Turning to the Tri-State page, we have this story titled, Western Dubuque School Board, Here's Budget Update, and the dateline is Farley, Iowa. Western Dubuque Community School District Business Manager Mark Frazier updated the school board on the budget certification process during this week's board meeting. In past years, the process required the district publishing the proposed budget summary and a public hearing about the proposal before certifying the budget. Following changes to Iowa Code last year by the Iowa Legislature, the process now requires several steps before certification. A mailed taxpayer statement now is required from the county auditor. Schools, cities, and counties are required to send their proposed tax information for 2024-25 to the Department of Management by March 15th. Following that, the county auditor has five days to create the taxpayer statements and is required to have them mailed to taxpayers by March 20th. The statements must include proposed tax information and public hearing notices for schools, cities, and counties and must contain an explanation explanation of any proposed tax increase. The public hearing on the mailed statement may not be held prior to March 25th. Schools, cities, and counties may not certify a budget that produces a levy that is higher than the rate reflected on the mailed statement. In addition, a new proposed property tax notice that is different from the mailed taxpayer statement must come from the district. It will include the public hearing information also found in the auditor's taxpayer statement, but also must include more specific information on proposed property taxes, with tax information broken down by fund reflecting the current fiscal year 2024 rate versus the fiscal year 2025 rate. The notice must contain an explanation of any proposed increase to property tax must be published in the local newspaper 10 to 20 days before the public hearing 
and must be posted on the district website in perpetuity, as well as be posted on the district's social media sites. First public hearing would accept public comments on the taxpayer's statement. Following that hearing, the traditional budget certification process is still required. Frasher said he is required to have the budget marked certified with the county auditor and the Department of Management with a deadline of April 30th. Frasher proposed a timeline of March 11th to review the proposed tax information to be published and set the first public hearing for April 8th. That hearing may not be held as part of the regularly scheduled board meeting and requires a special session also scheduled for April 8th. Frasher recommended that at the regular board meeting April 8th, the board set the second public hearing for April 29th. Following that hearing, the board may approve the 2024-25 budget. You are listening to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February 15, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Chad R. Hansen. Chad R. Hansen, 45, of Dubuque, died Sunday, February 11th, 2024. Visit- visitation will be from 10.30 a.m. to noon, Friday, February 16th, at Egelhoff Siegert and Casper Funeral Home, 2659 Kennedy Road, with family sharing at 11.30 a.m. The funeral service will follow at noon. Burial will be in Mount Cavalry Cemetery. Dorothy A. Kitto, Shellsburg, Wisconsin. Dorothy A. Kitto, age 76, of Shellsburg, Wisconsin, passed away Tuesday, February 13, 2024, at the Shellsburg Home in Shellsburg, Wisconsin. Funeral service will be held Saturday, February 17, 2024, at 11 a.m. at Erickson Funeral Home, 235 North Judgment Street, with the Reverend Nick McElrath, of First Baptist Church in Darlington officiating. A visitation will be held Saturday, February 17, 2024, from 10 a.m. until 10.45 a.m. at Erickson Funeral Home in Shellsburg. Online condolences may be expressed to the family at ericksonfuneralhome.com. Funeral Services, Alberta M. Beck, Preston, Iowa, Celebration of Life, 11.30 a.m. today, First Lutheran Church, Maquoketa. Tim A. Biederman, Dubuque. Visitation, 9 a.m. to noon, Saturday, February 17th. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Service, noon, Saturday, at the funeral home. Richard J. Bruning, Mount Carroll, Illinois. Celebration of Life, 4 to 7 p.m. today. Manny's Pizza, Savannah. Becky A. Bush, Kosharek, Dickeyville, Wisconsin. Visitation 1 to 2.45 p.m. Saturday, February 17th, Holy Ghost Catholic Church, Dickeyville. Mass of Christian Burial, 3 p.m. Saturday at the church. Melvin Dittmar, Scales Mound, Illinois. Visitation 5 to 7 p.m. today, Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena. Dale A. Hines, Dubuque. Visitation. 3 to 6 p.m. today, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Service, 6 p.m. today at the Funeral Home. Lois A. Matternack, Cascade, Iowa. Visitation, 2 to 7 p.m. Sunday, February 18th, 
Rife Funeral Home, Cascade. Service, 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 19th, St. Martin's Catholic Church, Cascade. Catherine E. Powell, Platteville, Wisconsin. Visitation, 9 to 10.45 a.m. Saturday, February 17th, Holy Ghost Catholic Church, Dickeyville. Mass of Christian Burial, 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Mark O'Laughlin, Cincinnati, Wisconsin. Wake and Funeral Mass, 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 16th, St. Dominic Villa Chapel, Hazel Green. Thomas R. Roche, Friendship, Wisconsin. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. today, St. Charles Borromeo Catholic Church, Cassville. Massive Christian Burial, 11 a.m. Friday, February 16th, at the church. James D. Sherbring, Colesburg, Iowa. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. today, Clifton Murdoch Funeral Home, Earlville. Service, 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 16th, Colesburg Community Church. Stephen S. Sprague, Dubuque. Visitation, noon to 3 p.m. Sunday, February 18th, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Celebration of Life, 3 p.m. Sunday at the Funeral Home. And Joseph L. Wachtel, Wausau, Wisconsin. Celebration of Life, noon Saturday, March 9th, Sundown Mountain Resort, South Lodge. And John B. Wall, Miles, Iowa. Visitation, 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. today, Calvary Lutheran Church, Cibula. Service, 10.30 a.m. today at the church. Rachel Bartle. Rachel Bartle, 67, of Dubuque, died on Tuesday, February 13, 2024. Private services were held. Burial will take place in Linwood Cemetery, Eaglehoff Secret and Casper Westview Funeral Home and Cremation, 2569 John F. Kennedy Road, is assisting the family. Joyce A. Cooey. Joyce A. Cooey, 85, of Dubuque, died on Tuesday, February 13, 2024. Arrangements are pending. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. Marilyn R. Zeezer, Ryan, Iowa. Marilyn R. Zeezer, 73, of Ryan, died on Tuesday, February 13, 2024. Visitation will be held from 2 to 6 p.m. Sunday, February 18th at Camp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Manchester and from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 19th at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Ryan where a massive Christian burial will follow. A private burial will take place at Calvary Cemetery in Ryan. Verna L. Flagel, Zwingle, Iowa. Verna L. Flagel, 69, of Zwingle, died on Saturday, February 10th, 2024. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 19th at Carson Celebration of Life Center in Makokota. Private graveside services will take place at Bridgeport Cemetery in Makokota. Now we turn to the sports page and girls prep basketball. The headline is Mustangs Moving On. Hampstead 45, Senior 38 in Iowa Class 5A Regional Quarterfinals by Tom Gregory. Ryan Rush wasn't looking for style points. As long as his Dubuque Hempstead Mustangs put up enough scoreboard points. 
Despite rival Dubuque Sr.'s best efforts, Rush's Mustangs obliged, escaping with a 45-38 win on Wednesday at Moody Gymnasium in an Iowa Class 5A Region 7 first-round playoff showdown. Camden K. scored a game-high 17 points for Hempstead, which improved to 7-15 and and advanced to Saturday's regional semifinal at Cedar Falls. Survive and advance, Rush, the Mustangs coach, said. That's the postseason. We were able to do that. Playoffs are a different ball game, especially when you are playing a team for the third time, and especially when that team is a city team. Senior played one of its best games of its 1-21 and season. This was our best game against Hempstead, said senior coach Cassie Alley, whose starting lineup included three sophomores and a junior. We've really matured through the year, and we have some great things to build on. Hempstead got out early, and unlike its previous wins of 15 and 14 points against senior this year, needed every bit of its first quarter lead to win. The Mustangs doubled up the Rams after one quarter, 126, behind Kay and their other senior leader, Chandler, Chandler Hauslog. Hauslog had two three-pointers, and Kay, the Mustangs' all-time leading scorer, opened and closed the first with baskets and accounted for the other six points of the period. Senior missed its last five first-quarter shots from the field and a pair of free throws as well but Senior connected on its first two shots of the second. Coupled with the spate of Hempstead turnovers, the score remained tight. Hempstead freshman Mara Hens gave the Mustangs a lift with two steals that quickly turned the points and a tight game turned back in Hempstead's favor. But the Mustangs were clinging to a 22-17 lead at the break. It didn't get any easier in the third as Senior stayed close. Hempstead could not distance themselves very much. But nor could the young Rams get over the hump. The teams volleyed back and forth on short scoring spurts as the Mustangs lead never fell below four but never reached double digits either. Rams sophomore Janina Williams who led senior with 11 points battled inside and Maddie Hoffman who added 10 points for senior knocked down some key three-pointers. Her three-pointer, with three minutes and 30 seconds left in the fourth, pulled the Rams to within 41-37, to the closest senior had been to the lead since early in the second quarter. But Kay scored six of Hempstead's final 11 points to keep seniors' upset bid at bay. Credit our seniors for showing leadership, Rush said. The experience paid off. We were really executing down the stretch, and I think it was the difference in the game. Now turning to the Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week, Hempstead Savers' historic swim. Logan Westhoff struggled to find the right words a short time after screaming at the top of his lungs at the Iowa High School Athletic Association state swim meet. Westhoff, a sophomore, anchored Dubuque Hempstead's history-making 200 freestyle relay that started with junior Kyle Powers, senior Brendan Decker, and junior Owen Leitzen. Telegraph Herald Athletes of the Week swam 124.87 to finish second on Saturday at the University of Iowa's Campus Recreation and Wellness Center and earn All-American consideration. They turned in the highest state relay finish in program history to help Hempstead score 59.5 points for a 14th place finish in the team race. 
It's mind-blowing, Westhoff said shortly after the meet. I'm really at a loss of, for words right now. These are the guys I've been swimming with forever. They're my friends, my family, and I get it with them. Is the best feeling ever. I didn't swim at districts because I wasn't feeling the best, and it was questionable if I would be able to perform. But today, I feel amazing. There's no other feeling like it. Powers opened the relay with a 21.48 split, and Decker followed with a 21.30. When I saw Kyle coming in, I knew I had to set the pace for the exchange and get my teammates hyped, said Decker, a Western Dubuque High School multi-sport athlete who swims for the Mustangs. I don't think I've ever felt better about finishing second in my life. We got second in football, and I was just on a second-place relay at state track. It was just cool to be surrounded by guys on that relay who wanted to go out and give everything they had to win. Lightson then turned in the first sub-21 split in program history with his 20.78, and Westhoff brought it home with a 21.31. I think we were in third or fourth when I went in, which is pretty good. A pretty good spot to be in, considering we were seated fourth, Lightson said, of the state meet. I felt pretty good about my leg. It felt so good to look up and see we broke the school record again. When we all got out of the pool, we were jumping up and down, slapping each other. It was pretty cool. Quartet shattered the school record of 126.55, set just a week earlier at districts, when Michael Rett Gilbertson replaced Westhoff as the anchor. I love seeing the reaction on my teammates' faces when we broke it, Powers said. It was such a cool moment. We weren't fully tapered at districts. We were tapering for state, and it felt amazing to break the record. Pleasant Valley won the 200 freestyle relay state title in an automatic All-American time of 122.95. They all dropped lifetime best splits to make that swim happen, Hempstead coach Rick Leffelholtz said. We had a great team of swimmers who helped motivate each other to believe they could go faster. Hampstead won its first district championship in program history with its performance at the Dubuque Community School District Aquatic Center the week before state. The Mustangs also qualified at least one entry for all 11 events at state for the first time in program history. Now we turn to prep wrestling. The Iowa State Tournament... Strong start on 3A mats by Tim O'Neill. The first round was perfect. The second round could have gone a little better, but Dubuque-Hempstead and Western Dubuque still combined to send five wrestlers to the quarterfinals of the Iowa Class 3A State Wrestling Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Dubuque-Hempstead's Landon Gottschalk at 113 pounds, Mitchell Pins, 120 Evan Bratton, 125, and Western Dubuque's Kellen McKenna at 106, and Joe Hirsch at 144, each won second-round matches on Wednesday, moving within three wins of a state championship and potentially just one victory away from securing a spot on the medal stand. Hempstead went a perfect 6-0 and in the first round, but won just three of six matches in the second. Pins opened his pursuit of a third state medal, with a 4-2 first-round victory over Mason City's Reed Kruger at 120, then added a 5-4 victory over Linmar's Malik Debo in the second. Pins, 
19-2, the number 12 seed and a two-time sixth-place finisher, will face Ankeny Centennial's fourth-seeded Cody Vandermark in today's quarterfinals. A victory would guarantee at least a sixth-place finish. Gottschalk, a freshman and son of former Hempstead State champion Adam Gottschalk, followed up his first round by with a 5-2 victory over Braxton Winkie of Ames. Gottschalk, the number seven seed, improved to 34-7 and and will face second-seeded Tyler Harper of Norwalk in today's quarterfinals. Bratton, a two-time qualifier, won a 7-2 decision over Ankeny's Centennial's Ethan Sodergren in the second round. The number seven seed, Bratton, will wrestle Bettendorf's second-seeded Timothy Koster in the quarterfinals. Hempstead three-time qualifier Dawson Fish beat Dawson, Dawson Fish beat North Scott's Benjamin Little for the third time in his last seven matches to begin his quest for a state medal. After winning major decisions at the regional dual tournament and again in Saturday's district tournament, Fish parlayed an early takedown into a pin in 1 minute and 17 seconds at 157. Fish was pinned by Bondurant Farrar's Jack Lewis in 3 minutes and 12 seconds in the second round and will need to wrestle back to earn his first state medal. Hempstead's Elijah Hyatt dominated Clear Creek Amana's Elder Mendietz for an 18-3 technical fall in his 106-pound first-round match. He lost a 5-1 decision to Waukee Northwest's Carew Christensen in a rematch from the state dual tournament. Mitchell Murphy earned a first round bye at 132, but lost a 3-0 decision to Fort Dodge's Kane Buttrick in the second round. The Mustangs finished the first round with three pins from their big guys. The second round ended with Southeast Polk wrestlers pinning all three. Cam Smith stuck Linmar's Philip Jacobs in just 38 seconds in the first round at 190, but lost by fall to Southeast Polk's Brent Slade in 42 seconds in the second round. Tate Woodruff pinned Marion's Tate Brawl in 3 minutes and 53 seconds at 2.15, but lost in 2 minutes and 25 seconds to the Rams' Holden Hansen. Zach Conlon took a 1-0 lead into the third period at 2.85 before winning by fall in 5 minutes and 7 seconds over Dallas Center Grimes' Ryan Perch in the first round. Southeast Polk's Cooper Martinson pinned Conlon in 14 seconds in the second round. Western Dubuque's ninth-seeded McKenna wasted little time in his state debut, pinning Bettendorf's Hudson Fleming in 123 in the first round. He added a pin of Spencer's Connor Stickrod at 129 in the second round and will get a rematch with Cedar Rapids Prairie's top-seeded Dylan Munson in today's quarterfinal. Munson pinned McKenna in 4 minutes and 58 seconds in the championship match at the Mississippi Valley Conference Tournament. Hirsch earned a bye through the first round and opened his second state tournament with a pin of Spencer's Wyatt Hying in 5 minutes and 21 seconds at 144. Hirsch, 33-4, and four, the number four seed will face Ankeny's fifth-seeded Benjamin Hansen in today's quarterfinals. 
Drew Birds, also a two-time qualifier, wasn't as fortunate as in his second-round match, coming up short in a 7-2 decision against Ankeny Centennial's Ari Eilitz in at 165. David Tyson, who won a 10-4 decision over Marion's Adam Rose in the first round at 175, was pinned by Waterloo East's Magana in a 54 seconds in the second round. Now we turn to the local calendar and today's events. In boys prep wrestling, Dubuque-Hempstead, Dubuque-Wallert, Western Dubuque at IHSAA State Tournament, Wells Fargo Arena, Des Moines, 9 a.m. In college baseball, Dubuque at Lyon, Arkansas, Batesville, Arkansas at 1 p.m. Men's college wrestling, Dubuque at Coe at 7 p.m. And in boys' prep basketball, 7.30 p.m., Dubuque-Hempstead at Iowa City Liberty, Iowa City High at Dubuque-Wallard at 7.30 p.m., and Western Dubuque at Cedar Rapids-Xavier at 7.30 p.m. And on the air today, in the PGA Tour, the Genesis Invitational is at 3 p.m. on the Golf Channel. In women's college basketball, Illinois at Penn State at 5 p.m. on BTN. South Carolina at Tennessee at 6 p.m. on ESPN. Drake at Murray State at 6 p.m. on ESPN+. Plus. Northern Iowa at Belmont at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN+. Plus. And Michigan at Iowa at 7 p.m. on Peacock. In men's college basketball. Northwestern at Rutgers at 5.30 p.m. on BTN. Temple at Florida Atlantic at 6 p.m. on ESPN2. Minnesota at Purdue at 7.30 p.m. on BTN. Colorado at UCLA at 8 p.m. on ESPN. Stanford at Washington at 8 p.m. on ESPN2. And Utah at USC at 10 p.m. on FS1. In NASCAR Cup Series racing... Duel at Daytona at 6 p.m. on PS1. For NHL Hockey, the Stars at the Predators at 7 p.m. on ESPN Plus and Hulu. Penguins at Blackhawks at 7.30 p.m. on NBCSCHI. And NBA Basketball, Bucks at the Grizzlies, 7.30 p.m. on TNT and True TV. And we'll finish up with this story from the Lifestyle page. Local artists to exhibit at Clark's Quigley Gallery. Clark University, 1550 Clark Drive, will host an exhibition of artwork by local artist and Clark alumna Ali Levasseur, titled Supination and Pronation. The exhibition will open in Clark's Quigley Gallery on Tuesday, February 20th, and will be open through Friday, March 8th. An artist reception will be held from 2 to 4.30 p.m. Saturday, February 24th. Levasseur will present a gallery talk at 3 p.m., accompanied by American Sign Language Interpretation. Supination and pronation is rooted in Levasseur's journey toward healing after a significant physical injury to both wrists that fully immobilized her hands, wrists, and arms. Levasseur's studio art practice includes acrylic painting, collage, drawing with thread, soft and hard sculpture, and photography. 
She has shown locally through solo and group exhibitions at the Dubuque Museum of Art, Carnegie Stout Public Library, Voices from the Warehouse District, Dubuque Area Arts Collective, and Gallery Representation at Hello Galena, Illinois Gallery. She has served in volunteer leadership in several arts organizations, including membership of the City of Dubuque Arts and Cultural Affairs Commission. And that does it for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February 15, 2024. I'm your reader, Katherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening. Pharmacy Health Headlines. Flu season should be winding down, but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are warning about a second wave of influenza peaking in the southeastern U.S. Earlier this year, tests showed that the most common strain of flu virus was H1N1. Now, however, the H3N2 strain is becoming more common. That's the strain that caused such a terrible flu season last year. Both strains are covered in this year's flu vaccine, and experts report that the flu shot reduced the number of cases that needed medical attention by 47%. There is a new oral antiviral drug this year called Zofluza. One dose is all that's necessary to shorten the duration of influenza symptoms. The first really new antidepressant recently won FDA approval for treatment-resistant depression. S-ketamine nasal spray will be sold under the brand name Spravato. Physicians and patients have been eagerly awaiting the arrival of this new type of antidepressant. They may be shocked by the price. People starting on this medication will need twice-a-week dosing for the first month. The list price is roughly $600 to $900 per dose. That means the initial month could cost as much as $6,800. After that, People will require once-weekly or twice-monthly nasal spray administration. Those costs would range from $2,300 to $3,500. At the end of a year, Spravato could end up costing $45,000. Some insurance companies may balk at that expense. For years, health experts have been telling people that exercise is critical for good health and that walking is great exercise. Dog ownership can contribute. People who walk their dogs regularly get more exercise than people without pets. A study published in JAMA Surgery highlighted a downside of this otherwise pleasant activity, however. Dog ownership has increased in the U.S. over the last decade, but so have broken bones among older people out walking their dogs. Such fractures doubled between 2004 and 2017, with the majority of broken bones in women. 
About half of the breaks were in arms, wrists, or fingers. The other fractures, unfortunately, were more concerning. About 17% of the broken bones were hips, a situation that can have serious negative consequences for a person's mobility or even survival. The scientists recommend obedience training for pets so that they don't tug at the leash suddenly and tip a person over. In addition, it makes sense to match the dog and its temperament to the strength of the owner. Week after week, the FDA has announced recalls of contaminated blood pressure drugs called angiotensin receptor blockers or ARBs. So many lots of Valsartan, Herbisartan, and Losartan have been removed from the market that there are serious shortages. To cope with this growing problem, the FDA has expedited the review of additional R products. This week, the agency announced that it had approved a new generic Valsartan from Alchem Laboratories in India. The FDA reports that its evaluation of Alchem's manufacturing process does not indicate a likelihood of contamination with nitrosamine carcinogens. New technology that allows for non-invasive imaging of the retina may allow eye doctors to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. The retina is richly supplied with blood through a dense network of fine blood vessels. In Alzheimer's disease, however, this network thins and becomes more sparse. Possibly, this reflects what's happening elsewhere in the brain as well. The imaging is optical coherence tomography and geography. Researchers at the Duke Eye Center compared the retinas of 39 people with Alzheimer's disease to the retinas of 37 people with mild cognitive impairment and 133 people with healthy cognitive function. In addition to the loss of tiny blood vessels in the retina, a specific layer of the retina was thinner in people with Alzheimer's disease. These changes did not show up in people with mild cognitive impairment. This is the second time within the past few months we've heard about the possibility that optical coherence tomography and geography may offer an early diagnosis for Alzheimer's disease. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.